Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to engage with Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We pray that we would hear his voice clearly. We would uh, have the will to listen to it faithfully, to let uncomfortable things sink in and change us, and to hear and rejoice in the hope that um, our Lord Jesus holds out to us. And we pray it in his name. Amen. So we're looking at a series called Jesus Plus Suburbia, Seeking Our King Before Castles. Um, here's, a, here's a question that gets us right to the guts of what, what, what we're talking about, basically, very quickly, I think. Here, here's the question. Who is really blessed? Think it through. Uh, blessed just means who has it best in life, who's fortunate, who's well off, that kind of thing. Um, try and think specifically. Who do you know that you would consider a blessed person? Who's blessed? Got somebody in your head? One of the things we're going to have to uh, deal with very quickly as we engage with Jesus' teaching here is that Jesus' answer to that question and suburbia's answer to that question are very, very different. Uh, they're actually incompatible with each other. So we're going to start out talking about Jesus plus suburbia, right? Uh, before long, we will be talking about Jesus versus suburbia before you read too far into the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus puts the values of the kingdom of God in just stark contrast with the values of the society and suburbia around us. You actually have to choose between the two. It's going to challenge us a great deal. Because these two ways are utterly incompatible, they're utterly opposed to each other. Now what's what's this suburbia thing about? I reckon suburbia is about living a blessed life, isn't it? I reckon you talk to anybody here, and they won't use the word blessed necessarily, but what they're after is to seek the best life they possibly can in the here and now. They're seeking to live a blessed life. That's that's all it means. They want the best life they can get now. They want to be blessed. Um, But here's what suburbia's version of life looks like. Let me give you four things that I think are true. If you want to talk about any of these more, there's some interesting books on this stuff, but moving on. Um, I think one of the things suburbia is about is comfortable privacy. People put up fences around their mansions, put all their entertainment products inside and say, here's my walls, here's me, here's my world that I've created on the inside that's very comfortable and it's private and it's mine. That's one of the fundamental things that suburbia is about. Second thing suburbia is about, it might sound a little strange at at, at first, but I think it's very true, suburbia is about an easygoing personal morality. What do I mean? I mean that I get to have my little castle that I live in and I set the rules. My ethics, my way of life is good enough for me and you're not allowed to interfere with that and in fact I can box you out. This is how I live in my little house and as long as I don't start the lawnmower too early in the morning, we're supposed to get on with each other because we can live however we want in our personal little castle as long as we don't upset other people. And so I'm easygoing, I'm a decent bloke, sort of morality is good enough in suburbia. Be a decent bloke or chick or whatever you... I don't know. Suburbia is about seeking fulfilment in the present. This is absolutely fundamental. Getting the best you can afford now. Not many people in suburbia have settled for less than they think, materially, less than they think they can pull off and achieve. Who does that? Who thinks, I could afford a bigger house, I could work harder and get a bigger house? Most people will say, therefore, I will get the biggest house. I will work my butt off to get the dream house. That's what suburbia is about. It's about the dream house. It's about seeking fulfilment in the present. It's about getting the best life you can possibly afford and achieve now. And we won't settle for less than that in the here and now. That's what suburbia is about. And so the goal of suburbia in the end, I think, is this. Throw everything you have into achieving your personal kingdom and your desired lifestyle. Just throw everything you got into it. And I reckon that would describe 
95% of suburbia, doesn't it? It, it? it describes the people I talk to and, and the kind of mentality that I see around me. Um, Hugh McKay has some good books on it, if you're interested in that wider picture of sort of sociology in Australia, this kind of picture. The goal of suburbia is throw everything you have into achieving your own personal kingdom and your desired lifestyle. So we ask the question, who's really blessed? Suburbia mentality answers it. It's those people that have the best house in the neighbourhood, drive the best car, have the most enjoyable job, have the most luxurious lifestyle, their family's good-looking, have wonderful relationships with one another, are perpetually healthy, and their lives seem free of all real trouble. They're the blessed people. And Jesus couldn't disagree more strongly. They are not the blessed people from the perspective of the kingdom of God. They're actually the cursed people. That might sound very strange. Perhaps it'll sound less strange as we go on. But have a look at Jesus talking to his disciples in chapter 5, verse 13 of of Matthew 5. Very helpful to have your Bible open in front of you because I'll refer to it. Read what Jesus says here to his uh, disciples and the crowds sort of listening in. Um, He says to them, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people uh, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's three like metaphors, like uh, pictures that he, he paints, like, and, and they're comparisons for what disciples are, are supposed to be like. Salt, they're all the same point, actually, I think. Um, what's salt? Well, salt has to be salty, it has to be distinct, it has to add something to the food to be of use. Light, light is obvious, it's distinct, you can see it. Again, the, the point is, it's, it's, it's in your face, you can see it. You don't fail to notice it if you're a light. A city on a hill or a town built on a hill, you can't hide it unless it's very, very cloudy, but you can't hide it. You can see it. A lamp, do you put it under a bowl? Well, no, it loses its whole purpose for existing if you can't see the light coming from it. Jesus is saying the same thing to his people. He's saying Christians need to be an obvious presence in their community and in their workplace and, you know, wherever they are. Disciples of Jesus must not seek to be invisible in this world. That bumps up pretty quick against suburbia mentality as I've outlined it, doesn't it? What's Jesus saying? Well, uncomfortable publicity is what he's calling us to. We have the words of eternal life, friends. I know Jesus died for my sin. I know that I will have eternal life with him and therefore I should just live my life, shut up in my suburban home and hide from the world. That doesn't go here. That doesn't make sense, does it? I have the words of eternal life, so let's hide from people. Jesus calls us to uncomfortable publicity, to presence in our community, because as he says, salt that loses its saltiness, its distinctness, its its visible presence, if you like, is worthless. A town on a hill can be seen, can't be hidden. A lamp must not be hidden under a bowl or in a four-bedroom house. Friends, it's very easy to have a go at Christian traditions like, um, like the Amish or like monasticism, you're living in a monastery or something, because, you know, they're hiding away from the world and, and they don't engage with the world. And I think you can have a go at that. But it's just as easy, I think, to live in suburbia and be just as hidden from the world. Jesus calls us to uncomfortable publicity in our world. Listen again to verse 16. What's the goal of it? He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others. Let your Christianity, if you like, shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, this being before the watching world might 
result in people coming to know Jesus themselves. We, we talk about it in terms of um, four C's. You see the, the poster on this side. Um, how do you go about it? You, you connect with somebody. You meet them. You care for them. You show that you love them. You enter into a relationship with them. And you find a platform on that to communicate the gospel, to communicate the good news to them in Jesus. And God willing, perhaps verse 16 will happen and you might see them committing, glorifying your Father in heaven too, as Christians as well. We're devoted to that as a church. This is our vision series. This is central to who we are. We want to have an obvious presence in our community, in our workplaces, and we need you to have an obvious presence in your workplace and the places you are in the week as well, your social groups. Jesus is going to, in place of easygoing personal morality, he's going to call us to pursue perfect conformity to God's righteous way of life. Perfect conformity. Friends, we are heading to the kingdom of heaven where righteousness dwells. If you long for that, pursue that now. Pursue that lifestyle now is what Jesus is going to say. Jesus is going to call us in the face of um, seeking fulfillment in the present age to seek fulfillment in the future instead. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, then you must not seek your dream house in this world. You must not. It is small-minded and petty. The kingdom of heaven is our inheritance. It is a feeble dream for a Christian to have their dream house in this present age. Dream for the kingdom of God. Not a dwelling made of plaster and wood. We can do better than that. We've got better than that. Seek fulfillment in the future is what Jesus is going to call us. And therefore, versus the goal of our society in suburbia, throw everything you have into your apprenticeship to Jesus and the work of growing God's kingdom in the here and now. What's this apprenticeship to Jesus thing? This is our way of talking about discipleship. It's a bit weird. Other churches don't do it. This makes us special. Um, maybe. Stuart snickering. Yeah, it's a snicker point. Um, but seriously, we're trying to think, get you to think about discipleship, following Jesus in a fresh way. What do apprentices do? They learn the trade of the, the master, or whatever you call the boss. <laughs> we are apprentices to Jesus, part of his kingdom, and we're seeking to learn the way of Jesus, learn the trade of Jesus, which is righteousness, which is kingdom of God business. And the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to is all about what it means to live as an apprentice of Jesus. So we've got um, wonderful, exciting stuff from our master, our boss, uh, as apprentices of Jesus to learn uh, in coming weeks. But here's what he's going to say fundamentally about these this things I'm put on the screen. Over and over again, <laughs> choose. You can't have both. You can't have suburbia mentality and Jesus' kingdom of God mentality at the same time. Choose. And I trust you'll hear that every week for the next four weeks because it just reiterates over and over again through the Sermon on the Mount. Now let's have a look at uh, the, our, our passage here. Um, I'll give you some context for the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a look at chapter 4, verses 17, it talks about how Jesus starts his ministry and, and how he just goes about it from this point on, which is he went about preaching the kingdom of heaven, that it was had come near and people should join it. And then just after that, he calls his first disciples to join him. And he starts having his ministry where he goes about preaching about the kingdom of God and doing miracles. <laughs> and before long, he gets pretty popular. And so the bit that Bernie read to us about, um, just sort of summarising from chapter 4, verse 23, about what Jesus did, it talks about where people came from all over the place. Look at verse 25. Actually, I can do better than that. Have a look at it on the screen. Here's a map. There's Jesus up near Capernaum, preaching the kingdom of heaven has come near. Here's where people came from, verse 25. Large crowds came from Galilee, 
They came from the Decapolis, which is the ten cities across the river. Oh, my, things have moved. That's a pity. Um, Jerusalem, down 150 kilometres walk in the south. Judea, which is a little bit further. (laughs) And the region across the Jordan. They've just come from all over Israel. This is the biggest thing since Moses, right? It it really is. That's, That's how people are talking about it. It's really exciting. This guy can do miracles that make Moses blush. Like... He's he's got game when it comes to being a prophet or something. And so they're all flocking to him, all these people. And the disciples are really impressed and they're really excited and Jesus is really unimpressed. He isn't excited about this. What does he do with all these these followers from all over the country? Well, he goes up on a mountainside, chapter 5, verse 1, and has a different agenda. Listen to what he does. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw these crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down And his disciples, this small little band he had, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus gathers his apprentices and teaches them the way of the kingdom of heaven. And the crowds listen in and it's available to them too, but the focus is on people who are of the kingdom of heaven already. And he tells people how to live out the lifestyle of the kingdom of heaven. Now, as Bernie said, we've got these things called the Beatitudes. Who who would consider themselves like familiar with the Beatitudes? Do you know what I mean when I say that? I'm seeing some nods that are not, not tons committal, but yeah, okay, some people. <laughs> that, that's good. Um, the Beatitudes, you'll see a heading there in the NIV Bible, the Beatitudes. Um, it, it, the Beatitude, it, it just is a, it comes from a Latin word, beatus. Uh, it just means the blessed. Um, we're Westies, so let's just call them the blessedtudes. Just get a pen and rub that out, just call them the blessedtudes, because that's what it means. It's the blessed. That's, that's what this section is about. We heard before the agenda of suburbia on the question of who is really blessed. Jesus has got a thing or two to say about that point. He gives a whole heap of blessed here. And as I read it, though, I've had in the past um, a lot of trouble understanding what on earth he's talking about. Because frankly, you read it and it sounds like it's halfway between a Hallmark greeting card and a, and a fortune cookie. Like, what is he talking about? It's vague, it's platitudes, it doesn't seem to have any, any meaning for life. It just sounds like, oh, she'll be right, it'll turn out in the end. Like verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. When? Who? How? What are you talking about? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. That's, that's nice. Like now? When? When should we expect that? What's, what, what's that about? They might as well have said blessed are the cheesemakers, those of you who know what I'm talking about. Well, no, he might as well not have said blessed about the cheesemakers. It all comes into, it's a Monty Python quote, those who don't care. Um, It all becomes very simple when you realise what Jesus' message was. Jesus' message was the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Here's how to understand what the Beatitudes are about. The first line of every... There's two lines of each one. The first line is about the present, and it's about a characteristic of Jesus' apprentices in the here and now. The second line is about the future, and it's the reward, the thing they surprisingly get when the kingdom of God arrives in the future. Do you see? Have a, have a look at them. It all makes sense suddenly. I just, I get it. <laughs> Blessed are the merciful. People who are apprentices to Jesus and live that way now. It's a characteristic of apprentices to Jesus. For when God returns and brings his kingdom, they'll be shown mercy. Do you, do you see how it works? It's all very simple at that point to understand, I think. Let's get into it. Have a look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor people are people who don't have material goods. We know that. 
Um, the genuinely poor people don't also, they, their, their idea of self changes. They don't have pretensions about their identity. Um, they don't tend to have presumptions in relationships about being shown proper res- respect for their achievements. The poor just simply beg. They live with open hands in front of them and they are very happy to receive what they receive. That's what it means to be truly poor. Open hands. No leverage in negotiation, just open hands. Poor in spirit is people who are like that with respect to God. We don't come to God expecting him to, expecting that we have a claim on his mercy. We don't have pretensions. We don't have presumptions. There's no expectation of recognition. You just come like a poor beggar and you say, God, I will, I will desperately take whatever you give me. That's, what, that's how you become a Christian. And what does God give when you come to him, when you come to the Lord Jesus and say, I'll, I'll take whatever you give me? He hands you the kingdom of God. He hands you a share in his eternal kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are poor towards God. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And by the way, that isn't just how you become a Christian. That's, that's how you continue being a Christian. I have nothing except what God has given me. That's true today as, as much the day as when I became a Christian. I'm utterly dependent on him for everything. And I'll have no share of the kingdom of heaven except what he gives me freely by his great mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I hope you know what that means. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Friends, there's a lot of joy in this life. The Bible has a lot to say about that. It's one of the uh, marks of a Christian that we would be joyful because we, because of the first verse, because ours is the kingdom of heaven. But there's also a lot to, to mourn in this life. Um, right emotional responses, when our emotions are working the right way, it's really a matter of recognising what's in front of you and having a fitting response to the thing in front of you. So if you see a person become a Christian, re- respond to Jesus and become a Christian, and you don't rejoice, you haven't recognised what's in front of you. Rejoicing is just a natural result of going, this person was going to hell, and now they're going to heaven. Rejoice. That's amazing. But at the same time, if there aren't things in our world that we mourn, then we just haven't seen them clearly. Um, um, People hearing the gospel and rejecting it Excuse me. That's the point, though, isn't it? If I can't talk about people rejecting the gospel without even considering it, without tears, if I understood it. There's a lot of social issues that break, should break our hearts in our world. I think the callous, hard-hearted response of many Australians to those social issues should break our hearts further. When you see the depths of sin lurking in your life, though you've known Jesus many years, that should cause you to mourn. There's lots of things in this life that will cause you to mourn. And where do we look for comfort? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted in the kingdom of heaven. God will fix it on that day. It will be right. All will be well with the world. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What's meekness? Well, I think meekness, I like to define it this way. Meekness is about like a kind of a default setting you live by, a default setting of relating to others with gentleness. 
My default setting in a relationship is to be gentle with people. Though that's what meekness is. I'm not saying I pull it off all the time, but that, that should be what meekness is about. It's closely related to humility. You start out treating people gently rather than harshly. That was the way of Jesus. Um, it doesn't mean he was weak, though, does it? Meekness isn't weakness. Having a default position of dealing with people gently doesn't mean you can't be hardline and rigid and firm. It just means you start out being gentle. And Jesus went to the cross submitting to it meekly. But he wasn't weak. He, could have, he had the strength to get out of that if he wanted. In fact, the strength he had was that he went through with it, though he didn't have to. Jesus was meek. Responding harshly, impulsively, violently, that's dead easy. Having the strength of character to respond gently, I think you'll agree, is often very difficult. But this is what Jesus' apprentices are called to. Blessed are the meek. Jesus' apprentices are meek like him. They have a default setting of dealing with people gently. Here's the thing you've got to know, though. If you're meek, that will result in people taking advantage of you. It will. Uh, at least sometimes. Because in this world, aggressive self-assertion, pursuit of your agenda, is how you get stuff done. And sometimes people will take advantage of you if you're meek, if you're gentle with them. But friends, that's, that's, that's bickering over crumbs. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth and they won't have to bicker and fight over it. They'll inherit the earth when God's kingdom returns, when it, when it comes. We don't bicker over petty things when the kingdom of God's our inheritance. Now verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I love this verse. It's also the main point of the Beatitudes. Um, How do I know it's the main point with all these Beatitudes? It's a Greek structural thing called a chiasm, but don't worry about it. Um, This is the main point. Um, Verse 6 is the main point of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus doesn't say, what he doesn't say is, you know, followers of Jesus, you know, you should really try to be righteous. Now he says hunger and thirst. He grabs one of the most powerful basic urges we have as human beings and says that's how Christians should feel about righteousness. That's how we should feel about it. We should strive for it. We should long for it. Because to be really, really hungry is to have your entire being scream out food. Food now. To be really, really thirsty is just an all-consuming desire that you cannot ignore. And to be an apprentice of Jesus should mean, by God's Spirit, that we cry out for more righteousness, please, and we want it now. There's only two ways to solve real powerful hunger, and you don't have to involve Snickers bars. But you can. Two ways to solve real powerful hunger. One of them is you eat, and the one other one is you die, and there's no other options. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled when the kingdom of heaven comes. Do do you know what I'm speaking of when I say hunger and thirst for righteousness? Friends, this is where we need to pause and say, if you haven't a clue of the kind of desire from your heart that I'm speaking of, then spend this week crying out to God for it. Pray to him for it, because this is the work of the Spirit in people's lives in Jesus. give you an example. This week was a very exciting week for some people because the first full-length trailer for the Star Wars movie came out. Who here's a Star Wars fan? Who here's a ridiculously nutty Star Wars fan? No, I don't think any of you are. Um, I would know. Um, 
there's people who aren't just fans. There's people who are hunger and thirst Star Wars. There really are. They're almost as crazy as Mac people. Almost. I just had to throw that in, brother. Almost as crazy. See, if you're a big fan of Star Wars, you go, hey, it's coming out on, is it Christmas Day? I think it's Christmas Day. And you go, I'm seeing in the first section Christmas Day, whatever it is. They're, They're the people who are fans, right? But that's not the people who hunger and thirst Star Wars. The people who hunger and thirst Star Wars, this week, as soon as it came out, put up a, like a frame-by-frame analysis of the trailer and tried to work out what the plot of the movie would be. They're the people who hunger and thirst Star Wars. I'm not waiting till then. I'm going to analyse the depth of this thing, see if we can work out what's going on. Well, here's the poster. What's going on? Okay, so we've got some old characters that, that, that we know about. Clearly that girl's going to become a Jedi. Hey, that, that guy with the blue lightsaber, that looks like the lightsaber Luke lost at Cloud City. Maybe, maybe that's his and he grew up there. Maybe that's Lando Calrissian's son and that's his blue lightsaber. And, um, and also Luke's not in any of the trailers or any of the posters. Maybe Luke is the bad guy. Oh, like People who hunger and thirst Star Wars are doing this stuff and putting their analysis up for hours and hours because they hunger and thirst Star Wars. They're not going to wait till Boxing Day or whenever it is to see the movie. Friends, what would it be like to never sin again? To not even be tempted to do it, not willingly, not even accidentally finding yourself sinning. And that's just the negative side. That's just the stuff you shouldn't do. Have a a look at how the Bible describes the fruit, like the, the working of the Spirit to change people, to be more like Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. What would it be like if everybody just lived this way? What would it be like if you always loved your neighbour as yourself? What would it be like to ceaselessly experience the joy of knowing God as Father? Just acutely know the joy of that constantly. What would it be like to have the, both the will and the relational skill to always live at peace with your neighbours, especially the really difficult ones? You'll need forbearance for that, I'm sure. What would it be like, friends, to always, always relate to your neighbours kindly with goodness and gentleness and absolute faithfulness, never even slightly having something to regret or apologise for or change? Can't you see how good that would be? Jesus had good news for people who think that's pretty exciting. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled when the kingdom of God comes. People who really hunger and thirst for righteousness, friends, can't wait for the movie to come out, and they won't. They'll pursue it now. Pray to God that you would do that more. This is the main point of the Beatitudes. As I'll be praying that I do it more, I'm not a person standing at the front here who's got it all together as an apprentice of Jesus, let me tell you. Have a look at... uh, Oh, sorry, I've skipped one. Look at what the Apostle John says. This is our first reading. It's the same sort of point in a different way. It's very exciting. It says, Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what we will be is not yet made known. But we know that when Christ appears, when the kingdom of God comes, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We'll be like Jesus when he returns. Isn't that exciting? Notice the thing for the present, though. All who have this hope in him purify themselves now, just as Jesus is pure. If you really long for that, you'll start living it now. Jesus makes the same point in chapter 5. Have a look down at chapter 5, verse 48. It's a very difficult verse to understand, but I'm going to give you the key to understanding it, all right? Have a look at chapter 5, verse 48. 
Very difficult verse. Here's what it says. It says Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me give you the key to understanding that verse. The key to understanding that verse is to realise that Jesus is being serious. That's it. Here's what Christians should strive for. Be satisfied with nothing less. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if you're not that yet, and none of us are, we've got work to do. We've got things to strive for. We should desire hunger and thirst. Be satisfied with nothing less than that. Let me give you two sides of the dangers with that. Um, over this side, I just want to say, this isn't like you guys and you guys, it's just two sides of this point. Um, that doesn't mean you can be perfect in this life, right? The Bible says that, makes it very clear, 1 John makes that very clear. People will continue sinning as Christians in this age until Jesus comes, because when are we made, um, when are we filled with righteousness? It says, well, when the kingdom of God comes. On the other side, though, and I actually want to emphasise this point, that doesn't mean we shrug our shoulders at sin, we just go, oh, you're going to keep sinning. I, I hear that all the time from Christians. Oh, you're going to keep sinning. It's, it's just you know, like, as if we're comfortable with it. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness surely feel that there's no room for complacency about sin here. Instead, they repeat, I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Let's not just go, oh, I'm going to sin. I'm going to sin, and I'm not okay with that. I want to change. I desperately want to be more like Jesus, and I want to see less sin in my life because I'm heading to where righteousness dwells. Do you, do you see the point I'm making? Yeah, yeah, we're going to keep sinning. Okay, let's put that to the side. Here's the side I want us to concentrate on. Friends, don't be satisfied with sin because it's not okay. We should be desperately unhappy about it and we should repent and seek righteousness because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they'll be filled. Now, for the sake of time, I'm skipping to verse 8. All this is important. I want to finish here with verse 8 today. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, to be pure in heart means to be devoted to one thing. The way we'd say it today is um, a person is single-mindedly devoted to something. Like that, that's more the expression we'd use to make basically the same point. Um, people who are pure in heart, single-mindedly devoted to God, will see God when God's kingdom comes. Um, Christians, we need to be single-minded in our devotion to God. That's a pretty simple point, isn't it? Um, I'm sure there's all sorts of areas that we need to work on that, though. I want to point out one. Um, many of you are parents um, of, of uh, some of small children, lots of small children in our church. Um, the most important goal we should have in life as families in our discipleship, discipleship, apprenticeship to Jesus, is that as families we would be single-mindedly devoted to Jesus and help our kids develop single-minded devotion to Jesus too. Parenting is basically coaching in the end. It's prayerfully coaching our kids to be apprentices to Jesus. The starting point of being a good parent, therefore, is being that ourselves. Um, but our kids are watching. They notice our choices and priorities, and it really matters because we're forming them as people now by how we parent them. Um, let, let me just focus on one issue. How high a priority do your kids think it is to be in church each and every week? Another way of asking it, what things do your kids see you choosing to be at instead of at church? What I'm going to say now is going to offend some of you. Um, I'm going to bite the bullet and say it anyway because it's important and here's why. Um, I desperately want to see you in the kingdom of heaven and I want to see your kids in the kingdom of heaven. 
And so I'm going to say it anyway. I am concerned, as a pastor of this church, and I know Stuart shares this concern very deeply, um, I am concerned, we are concerned, about the potential for kids in our congregation to grow up thinking that coming to church is, at best, the second best option. At best. Because in practice, from experience, they will have learned, they've grown up, thinking that kids' birthday parties on Sunday are more important than church because that's what's prioritised when the two clash. They'll have learned that Sunday sport is more important than church because that's what's prioritised when the two clash. They'll grow up thinking that other social clubs are more important than church because that's what we've prioritised when the two clash. Because they see the choices we make. They're our real priorities. And so at root, I'm concerned for the enormous potential in our congregation for kids to grow up thinking that Jesus is at best the second best option because how we engage with church is a big indicator of how we engage with Jesus. It just is. Not only that, friends, but a lot of us don't have teenagers yet and then the real fun begins, yeah? Then the real fun begins. The kind of teenagers we raise, though, are being set up by how we parent now if you've got small children. Let me give you an example. Um, When I was 16... I made it into the Minto Ghosts basketball team. It was like a rec team. It was very exciting for me. Um, I made it. because Everybody that tried out made it, but it was still exciting. <laughs> then I found out the games would be on Sundays, and they could be anywhere in the state. So Sunday is out for a lot of weeks. Sucked into my parents, right? Deal with that. <laughs> parents sitting over there. Um... I actually took very little convincing that I should drop out of the team and go to church. That's what I did. I dropped out of the team and went to church. My mum pointed out, I was talking to her about the other day, that probably the biggest reason I did that was that I was a Christian. I had a personal faith in Jesus. And, and I agree, that's the biggest reason. The second reason that was very, very significant was that my family had a lifelong habit of being at church each week and not choosing other things over that. That was very influential. I think if that didn't happen, that would have been possibly a very different decision for me. But it was modelled to me just week by week, just a habit, just it's how we engage with staff. Jesus is important, so we go to church. Friends, the practical life priorities that we live out now as families, if you've got small children, those things we live out now, they're setting the stage for the kinds of teenagers we'll parent in a few years' time. Nothing's guaranteed, of course. It's not guaranteed. But our kids grow up watching us and say, well, we've lived out Jesus being second most important option when other things arise I'll choose the other thing over Jesus and church well they've learnt that lesson and we will have failed as parents by modelling that to them please think about that very seriously (laughs) friends who's really blessed our default position will be continually to go well suburbia around me big house good job wonderful relationships those who have the kingdom of God and throw everything they have into it they're the people who are blessed That's what Jesus says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because theirs, not other people, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's such wonderful news. But Jesus offers no middle ground. So the point is, and you're going to have to keep making this choice day by day and week by week as we go through our series, which one are you going to choose? Because you can't have it both ways. Please join me as as I pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the kingdom of heaven, this great hope that you've put before us. Please help us, centrally, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, because that's where we're heading if we know Jesus. 
please help us to hunger and thirst for that and strive after that and uh, desperately pray that your spirit would bring that in us more and more. Please make us more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.